0: I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at theological feminism with Dr. Amy Peeler, professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Dr. Peeler, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, I'm so glad that I could do so.
0: So, as an introduction, uh, let's get a historical view of feminism. Can you um, identify and talk a little bit, bit about the different waves of feminism?
1: Absolutely. Yes, scholars tend to put feminism into three and maybe four waves. I'll talk about that in a moment. But it really starts, at least in the American context, with the first wave focusing on voting rights. So Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, really just asking for women to be able to express their views at the polls. Seems rather basic to us now, but of course it was controversial then. The second wave is probably the wave of feminism with which most people are familiar, and that would be from the 1960s when women were asking for uh, the right to work, equal access to all spaces, a, a place at the table. And you have in second wave feminism some of that expression of anger or um Uh, fighting against the system that I think gives some of the negative connotations that people might have today. But even then, there was quite a wide spectrum. Uh, Third wave feminism, maybe into the late 80s, is asking not just can women come to the table, but can women come to the table as women? So you see an increased concern for parental rights, for uh, support for maternity leave, uh, that women get to join whatever career they want to, But that they honor the fact that they're women, that their bodies are different. And of course, that clearly means for many women having children. Um, Fourth wave feminism, which is a little bit debated if that's really started yet or not, uh, but that is also concerned with men and how they are conscripted into ideas of masculinity. So, really uh, equal access for all people to be who they are. I, I think as a believer, I would say, be who God created them to be. And you also have a rising concern in both third and fourth wave feminism for intersectionality. A lot of early feminism was defined by white women, by upper class women, educated women. But of course, the experience of women of color in America is going to be very different. And so in third and fourth wave, you see a recognition that feminism may look different in different communities. So that's a broad uh, sketch of the historical situation. And then maybe it would be helpful to think about, well, where do Christians come in? Where does the theology of feminism come in? Because it kind of pokes through there in interesting spaces.
0: And so in terms of feminist theology from a Christian perspective, is there a biblical theology of, for women of feminism? Is it explicit? Is it implicit?
1: Oh, that's a really fun question. Really, all the way back to the beginning, some of the earliest feminists in the first wave were engaging with scripture. Uh, some of them from a perspective of the Bible says really harsh things, so we need to get rid of portions of it. And some were saying, no, the Bible is actually really positive for women. We just have to find the right way of interpreting it. So, those two streams rejecting Christian theology and pressing deeper into Christian theology, those have always defined uh, or been elements of the spectrum of feminist theology. So that remains true. Uh, You'll find theologians who um, would advocate, look, the Bible is created by humans in very patriarchal systems, and so some portions of it are simply not uh, possible for us to implement today, or not ideal for us to implement today. Others, and I would put myself in this category, uh, define themselves as still under the authority of scripture, but ask for all the tools of exegesis, history, narrative, uh, to press into what I think is the heart of God for men and women, and for women that they are valued. And now having studied the New Testament in depth for goodness, 15, 20 years, I can say every time I've asked the hard questions, I've walked away with that sense of deep valuing of women from the Christian story. Uh, not all have seen it that way, but uh, that's definitely the discoveries that I've I've made.
0: So what would the central principles be that you see in scriptures that relate to this issue?
1: Yes, yeah. So I do think it starts at the beginning. It's not a, an issue that's discussed Frequently throughout the Old Testament, but the creation of the humans, male and female, in the image of God becomes a def- definitive statement in Jewish theology that all humans are valued and the fact that it stated explicitly they are male and female acted as a uh, press against a lot of societies at that time that really saw women as less than men as property or not fully human uh, so you have that affirmation at the beginning at the story that says who are who are humans who are they in relationship to God You have that affirmation in Genesis 1, every human, male and female, is in God's image. I think then for Christian interpreters, as you move into the incarnation, then you get the affirmation that God came to save the world. God chose to do that by becoming human and by being born of a woman. So we're filming this in December. We're moving closely toward Christmas But it's become increasingly central to me that God chose to enter the world in this way. And that is, I think there's no higher affirmation of women in the Christian story than that God chose to partner with Mary to become incarnate. Uh, I think Christians would say the incarnation is the center of our theology at all times. And so to really attend to what that means for gender, what it means for women is very important. I do think we could add then the fact that Christ appeared first to women at the resurrection uh, is not something to be ignored, uh, that they are the evangelists to the evangelist, that then there are women involved throughout the New Testament in proclaiming the good news. So I know there's some hard text, and we can certainly get to those, but um, creation and recreation both affirm the value of women.
0: All right, and how about okay? This is a tough one. If you can sure. give some sort of a historical overview of the status of women um, in in the church since the time of Jesus,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that that's a that's a there's so many good books about that. Uh, maybe I can give a link to a few. Um, so you do have followers of Jesus at the beginning. I know in my own mind, I tend to picture the twelve, right? And we have their names a few times. And they're all men. But if you read closely, the term disciple or even apostle or follower is much broader than those 12. You have groups of people faithfully with Jesus, and that includes women. We know that because Luke 8 tells us that women are following along, and then we see them appear throughout Jesus's ministry. So from the very beginning, he had women functioning as his followers, sitting at his feet, learning. We think of Mary, Mary and Martha. Uh, and throughout, as I said, the resurrection. Then in the early church, really in all spaces, we know that women are active. They are doing ministry to the degree they're proclaiming the gospel to the degree that they're getting imprisoned. I think of Junia, who's mentioned in Romans 16. Uh, there are women leading churches. Phoebe carries the letter to the Romans. So in all spaces, we know even historically, there Celsus, um, who's a critic of Christianity, says, oh this religion is just for women and children there were Mm -hmm. so many women involved that it seemed like they were even uh, maybe outpacing the men in attendance and they're not just sitting there receiving things they're active participants that's true throughout that's always true throughout the history of the church. Uh, and it's often the case that actually more women are faithfully attending than men. And sociologists have done really good work on asking the question, why might that be? But you never have a time or, or a space in which women aren't attending, participating. And you also never have a time in which women aren't taking active roles. Now that may look Um, That is rarely full and equal leadership to men, although there are always exceptions, and I think church historians of the last two decades have done a good job of maybe unearthing some of those exceptions. So there's always been a minority report of women in all forms of leadership. But it has been the minority. Uh, the dominant leadership structure has been male, really, up until the 1970s. When I think the cultural moment of feminism then started to, uh, the church started to listen to that. And again, I want to be really careful with my words here. It wasn't like, oh, we never thought that women were worthy of participating, and all of a sudden feminism said that they should. No, it's not quite that way at all. In fact, the the affirmation of women had always been there, but the 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 cultural moment opened some doors, opened some perception that maybe hadn't been available for. And so you start to see more women in leadership at that time. So always present, rarely uh, the dominant form of leadership, but always some women leaders along the way.
0: But wasn't there many centuries, say, in Roman Catholic Church and maybe even Protestant churches, where women literally had to keep silent in the churches? Um,
1: ah that's yeah that's an interesting point that's true that um they in some spaces they were asked to keep silent but i do think, and again, I would say like a church historian who knows these centuries better might, might correct me, but I think the absolute silence would probably be a minority. And really that's exegetical. Anyone that's reading Corinthians that finds in chapter 14, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church, she should be silent, also reads in chapter 11 that women are praying and prophesying right. in the church. And so few kind of large groups of Christians have ignored 1 Corinthians 11. Or you can think of the daughters of Philip who are prophesying Mary's own song. We have women speaking, Phoebe giving the letter. We have women speaking throughout. So it's been an unusual, or I would say kind of a fringe movement for absolute silence. I know it exists. Fascinatingly, someone texted me earlier today and said, I am in a church where women are absolutely silent. How can you help me? So it still exists. Um, And it definitely existed in times and places. Um, but um, it, you know what I don't know is if that was in what way that was true in the Catholic Church, though, though our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church do have kind of a focus on clergy. And so it wasn't just that women were silenced, but it was often that the laity didn't have a voice and the clergy did. Now, because the clergy was male, of course, that meant that male were speaking. But I, I would put my wager on, it was more about that division between priesthood and non-priesthood than necessarily between genders. But you're right. I don't want to um, sugarcoat things or make them seem more positive than they are. There are definitely long periods of time where women are I I think oppressed, I think that's the right word, not allowed to function in the way that uh, God clearly lays out in the New Testament that they were functioning. Um, so any church that advocates for total silence, I just don't think they're reading their scriptures because they're not seeing the times when women speak.
0: So in terms of identifying or naming God in our mm. God talk, how are we to understand mm-hmm. um I mean, that's been a big part, central thrust of a lot of Christian feminisms is to change Mm -hmm. our God talk. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's one of my uh, most interesting topics. I spend a lot of time researching and thinking about that. I fall here, uh, and I recognize that other people might have a different way of going about this, but I do believe the names given to us of the triune God in the New Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are fitting and prized names. For it describes not only how God relates to us, but how God relates in God's self. These are eternal relationships. And so I think those terms need to be affirmed. I also think we need to be very careful, especially when we use male terms, father and son, that we don't inappropriately imagine a maleness that's not true of God. Uh, God is, uh, now I speak of the triune God now, God is God, God is spirit, John 4 says, God is not human, and so God is non-gendered or above gender, right? God is not a, create, a creature. God is creator. So we have to start there. Um, and so then when father is affirmed of God, I think that speaks of Um, God's really coming to us by revealing the son and is the cause of the son becoming human. And what do we call someone that causes the son, a son, a child? We say father. That's fitting as a revelation of the incarnation. But I do believe the evangelists actually work quite hard to affirm that this is not some God who impregnates a woman like you might read about Zeus or others. They do a good job of affirming, along with God's fatherhood, that God is not male. Now, one might say, but Jesus is male, and I have no disagreement with that. That's exactly how people perceive him. There's no kind of question about that. But again, I would return to the fact that if, as I do, one holds to the doctrine of the virginal conception, then this is a really unique thing, right? And of course, duh, the incarnation is unique. Okay. But even by way of gender, for he is male, right? Totally he is. But where did he get his body? From a female alone. Joseph is not evolved. And so there is something embracing of both male and female in Christ himself, even in his embodiment. And so again, yes, he's male, but because he's male like no other, I then would say, uh, I don't think it's quite appropriate uh, for clergy to be male alone so they can look like Jesus, but because they can never fully, no male can exactly be like Jesus. Uh, No female can be like Jesus. But yet in the body of the church, if we both represent him, I think that's a much better picture. So to go back to father language, I I would continue to affirm father for God. I think that's right. I try to uh, not employ masculine pronouns as much as possible because I recognize that father opens up conceptions in people's minds that are automatically male. And I'd like to work against those as much as I can to press into really God as totally distinct from any human uh, and to get that point of cross, I think is very important. So I know there was a whole lot there, uh, but that's some of the ways that I've tried to understand. Now, some will say, why can't we talk about God as mother? And certainly we're given pictures in scripture. God is the mother hen, right? God is the rock who bore us. There are maternal images for God, so that's not inappropriate. But the reason why I would shy away from that is that, again, I think father is a way of affirming the incarnation. We don't call God mother because Jesus already had one in Mary. And so to get that picture correct of how God Mm, chose to come, fatherhood, father, affirming father for God is actually a placeholder or an invocation of the incarnation
0: itself. All right. So to go a little deeper into the incarnation, uh, I mean, some people might argue that it was necessary mm. that God became incarnate in a male human being because men are somehow superior and, mm. and able to represent or image God in ways that women couldn't. But, um i I'll, I'll make the statement that it was necessary that Christ was male, not because men are superior, but just the opposite It's mm-hmm. men that caused the overwhelming amount of crime, sexual assault, robberies, mm-hmm. all sorts of violence, war, torture, and genocide, mm-hmm. and therefore men aren't ontologically essential for being you know, representing the incarnation but more socially mm-hmm. so what do, How would you respond to that
1: yeah. Wow, what a wonderful set of insights there. And this is one of those questions that I think we're allowed to be theologically imaginative, uh, right? God has done what God has done and we accept that at some level. And we also have to say, God being God could have redeemed the world in a different way. I think that's actually a really important caveat with which to begin. That helps me see even the power of the incarnation even more. God didn't have to do it this way. God chose to do it this way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so getting that kind of stated does the Savior have to be male. You're exactly right that you will actually find a good number of the fathers, if not saying it explicitly, kind of assuming that male is ideal, male is representative of perfection of God. And so, of course, Christ had to be male. I always think that even in the fathers, there's kind of elements of, again, they're all affirming virginal conception. So there's elements of that kind of pushing against the perfection of the male. Uh, Sometimes I think in ways that they don't even realize what their words are doing. But I I think more recently you see an argument really in twofold, what you've already articulated that it is the case that the perpetrators of crime tend to be male. And so if Christ is redeeming the, um, the most difficult situations, then Christ comes as male. And another way I've heard that articulated is an appeal to Philippians 2, that if Christ is demonstrating what it is to give up power, being in the form of God, yet becoming a servant, if he were to have come as female, females always have less power, but that was really true in first century Palestine, or really the whole ancient world. And so he couldn't have demonstrated that. I think that's incredibly helpful. Uh, And again, I don't think we'd have to say there's only one right answer to this question. Um, But I would say, yes, I do think that Christ had to come as male. Uh, And again, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but this is a point that I found really illuminating. So I'll return to it. But if God is going to redeem humanity by becoming human, well, how, how do humans come about? Well, through birth. And if God is going to embrace both male and female, all the way back to that Genesis affirmation, then if Christ is going to be born of the flesh of a woman, had Christ come as a woman, well, males would have been left out of that equation. A woman from a woman wouldn't have included males. The only way for that to happen was for Christ to be male, but to be born of a woman so that then that image of God is renewed in him. So I think all of those... um Options are possibilities as we think about why he came. The one that I don't like is that sometimes, excuse me, sometimes people will say, uh, well, that was just the culture. No one would have accepted a female savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were lots of female deities, in fact, very influential ones. Artemis and Ephesus is one of the most powerful goddesses of the time. So I don't think that's a historically fitting answer. And moreover, in Jesus's own ministry, he was willing to push against cultural norms. And so I find that answer the least satisfying. Uh, But some of the others that we've mentioned, I think, could be interesting possibilities.
0: All right. So if we could take a look at um, some different schools Mm -hmm. of feminist thought within the church, uh, starting, I suppose, in the 60s, Mm -hmm. um, where would you, or if you want to go all the way back to the first Mm -hmm. wave, um, how would you identify and describe those?
1: Yeah, Um, the first wave again. I've I've mentioned the production of this book called the Woman's Bible. It's really an interesting read in which women were invited to comment on all the passages that mention women, especially those that seem derogatory to women. Mm -hmm. And some of those who are invited to contribute will make that statement. We just have to move past this text. And what I appreciate about those feminist interpreters that. say very critical things, is that they look at Scripture kind of with eyes wide open. Now, I don't like to stop there, but I really have been benefited by reading All spectrums of feminist theology, even the most kind of rejecting of Christianity, because they don't dance around some of the really hard text. And I think as believers, we need to listen to our critics or we'll never going to be able to understand the weight of the challenge of our text. So you find that at the beginning. Some of the influential voices in uh, kind of the beginning of academic feminist theology as we know it would be someone like Mary Daly, who is probably well known, very intense. She really would then have described herself as post-Christian, that kind of anger at women's oppression, uh, welled forth in her in such a way that uh, she would say, I just can't have any part of this. Um, someone very different would be Elizabeth um, uh, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza or Elizabeth Johnson. Um, Fiorenza is really a historian trying to press into what was the original Jesus community like and what did it look like for him to include women. Elizabeth Johnson, is a Catholic theologian, she writes She Who Is, she writes on Mary, um, and she really stays within not only Christianity, but Catholicism, and asks, how can I remain within a community and still advocate for women? So those are some important names. Now the field is so broad, and I would say even with the um, kind of 70s, 80s, you have see the birth of evangelical feminism, which would be the camp that, that I would fall into. People within kind of the evangelical movement in America uh, are, are saying, let's look at the texts text again and see how it can support women. So some great writers today would be Lynn Kohick. She also writes on history. Uh, There's a great volume that just came out in its third version, Discovering Biblical Equality, uh, Rebecca Gruthius, Krista McCurland. So there's so much literature. I'm teaching a class on gender this spring, and it's been the hardest thing in the world to decide what to read (laughs) because Mm. there's so much. I should mention as well, I've already mentioned womanist theology, uh, that from the African-American perspective, Marista from the Latin American, you have Asian-American theologians. It's really very important to read globally um, and and from different ethnic communities. I'm I'm grateful that we live in a time that people are usually very aware of that. uh, But listening to those voices are very important. One of my favorite books on Mary... by a womanist theologian courtney hall lee and and she she looks at mary's life from the perspective of someone on the outside and notices things in the text that i didn't see and so having those kind of community of voices and interpretation is really important so i've tried to mention a few that i think are are worthy of pursuing worthy of reading
0: so between those different uh, thinkers and different schools what are the key points of mm-hmm. agreement or disagreement, division? Uh, what, do they, what do they argue about?
1: Yeah. I would say they all share a basic affirmation of the humanity of women. I was taught as a college student. I went to a Christian liberal arts college and I had a fantastic history teacher and she said feminism is basically the affirmation that women are human. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's pretty simple. And in some ways you might someone might say, "Oh, why would we need something like that? There's lots of places where women are are moving up in society." And that's true. It is much more true now than even was 30 years ago. Uh, But there's still spaces where improvement could happen. Case in point, Me Too, Church Too, right? I mean, we don't have to read any further than the news daily to see that there still is a long way to go. Um, so there would be that shared really across the spectrum, women are human. And that really goes back to a really influential idea from Aristotle, who way back in Greek philosophy just said, women are not human. And, and this was so powerfully influential throughout so many times and spaces, truly, um, the, the changes that have happened, even the last generation or 2 we'll see a shift from that idea to rejecting it. And again, the Bible always rejected it, right? The affirmation of the Imago Day and all people, that was always present in our tradition. Where, would, where they would differ, in my opinion, is how to come to scripture, right? Uh, one can imagine kind of like either scripture is something below you that you stand above it and decide, hey, here's the parts I'm going to take into my life and here's the parts I'm going to reject. And again, for someone who has really lived through an abusive or oppressive situation, I understand that inclination. Uh, It does make sense to me. I would want to put myself under the authority of Scripture. So just flip that model. Scripture is my authority. And if I read texts that seem off or wrong, my first kind of reaction isn't, oh, the text must be wrong. The first reaction is, I'm not understanding that correctly. How can I use the tools that I have to understand its historical context, to understand the words that are being used? Because I I guess it is a bit of a faith commitment at the core of my being, I trust that God is for women. And so when I read texts that sound derogatory or difficult, I say, well, I just need to press into this a bit more. And really, that's what I've done the majority of my adult life. Uh, As a junior, I started asking these questions a junior in college, so around the age of 20. uh, And that's what I've been doing for 20 years, I guess, is, is asking, how can I better understand these texts? And as I mentioned, every time I come to the conclusion that, um, no, God is good, and God values us even more than maybe society does, even today. Uh, and that's good news. That's worth telling. So that, that would be my short answer, an affirmation of women, but a dist- a division on how one treats the text.
0: And of course, how you interpret scripture has everything to do with how you view sexuality, sexual orientation, Ooh. relationship okay. with men in the church and mm. at home. So yeah. changes everything. Yes. Um, so you mentioned several people that you're interested in. Could you go into more detail about a few particular writers, thinkers that are contemporary?
1: Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll share some that have been influential for me. So already a few that I've mentioned, women biblical interpreters. Uh, I think that it's in, I really am a believer in representation. So as I was kind of starting in this career to see women writing and publishing and speaking at national conferences was a great encouragement. Oh, I can do this too. So in Hebrews in particular, I so remember seeing a woman, Pamela Eisenbaum, Gabriella Gallardini. It's like, oh, they do this book. I I could do this book. Maybe it wasn't quite as explicit at that, but I think it's a really powerful undercurrent. For me, though, in more recent years, so being trained as a New Testament scholar, I so value all of this historical and language work. But I've really broadened my thinking by turning to more formal, systematic theologians. And among them, Sarah Coakley would definitely be a very influential person for me. Her writings, especially God, sexuality and the self. Are very important to think about human desire, how God manifests. She really talks a great deal about God language that was very influential in some of my early research. Uh, Janet Soskis, uh, she has a book, The Kindness of God, uh, which is actually playing upon the theme of family, like kend, kindred kindness. Uh, and her work, too, is both elegant. Uh, simple, but really profound. So she was very influential for me. I'll mention another, because again, I think reading widely is very important. Lynn Marie Tonstad and her work on God language has really pushed me. Now, she and I wouldn't land in the same place in a lot of ways. Uh, well, I guess I would disagree with Sarah Cockley on things. I'm sure she would disagree with me, You never agree with everyone fully. But Tonstad and I would part, part ways in several different um, ex- exegetical decisions. But she too, had insight that was very formative for me. So I think um, reading kind of outside of one's discipline, maybe that's if you've been in the discipline for a few years, it's time to branch out a little bit to hear what philosophers and theologians have to say. That's been very stimulating for my own work. And those that I those are a few that I would definitely recommend.
0: All right. And for the class you're teaching on gender, what who is being read?
1: Yeah, great. So I've decided to go with four main textbooks. I'm going to be assigning, well, five actually, Lynn Kohick's Women in the Time of Early Christianity, so to get us rooted historically. And then um, as we turn to particular passages, I'll have us read Cynthia Westfall's Paul and Gender. I think this Mm. is really a magnificent piece. It's a bit of her magnum opus, where she not only looks at the text, but put them into historical context and big themes like creation and eschaton. I'm going to have us read essays from that Discovering Biblical Equality, but I'm also going to have us read uh, the very influential um, uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by Piper and Grudem. Uh, Mm -hmm. That is an older text, but it continues to be reprinted and, of course, is very influential with multiple books being named after it. So I Mm -hmm. think we need to engage in the conversation, as well as Tom Schreiner's Women in the Church. Wheaton is a place that's where I teach. Wheaton is a place that we agree to disagree on the question of women. And so as an educator, I need to present all voices to my students so that they can make the most informed decision. Now, of course, it's a little bit challenging because maybe my male colleagues could kind of keep their cards close to their chest about what they think. But since I'm standing there. They kind of have figured out what I think about women teaching theology. So I have to be a little bit more um, clear about where I'm coming from and then work really hard to create classroom space where they still have the freedom to disagree. And and truly, praise God, I've been able to do that year by year and give uh, students a spectrum. So those are the four main texts that we'll uh, engage with. And then the last week or the last several weeks, I want us reading um, outside of Protestant circles. So we'll read several and six by John Paul II. Uh, We'll read Elizabeth Bear Segal from the Orthodox Church. I want us to read portions of Calvin and Luther kind of to go back to Protestant roots to see that uh, Christians across kind of the ecumenical spectrum make different decisions about this. Having done the exegetical work, I want us to turn at least briefly to church history. So that's the scope.
0: Interesting. Sounds like a great class. So that brings up a question to me kind of on the side when did Wheaton first allow women to teach Bible or theology?
1: Yeah, uh, it, from its very beginning.
0: Really? Uh, in
1: the first faculty, women there was a woman um, a professor in Bible and theology, and we're one one group. Um, Jonathan Blanchard, our founder, and of course our motto is for Christ and His Kingdom, He was an amazing man. He was a committed abolitionist and he was committed to women's education. And so from the very beginning, as he believed that God's kingdom was coming and God had asked people to partner with uh, God in the movement of the kingdom. He said, I'm going to train men and women. So it goes back to our very beginnings. I think sometimes our reputation is a little different than that, uh, but that's been consistent. Now, were there eras in which women felt silenced? Absolutely. That continues. That um, we have some of our, we get reports from some of our students of, uh, maybe they don't feel the freedom to speak in class, our female students. And that's not the faculty that's not encouraging to speak, but sometimes our constituency has come from churches where women aren't in leadership hmm. and we're all college students figuring out how to exist together. So we certainly don't do it perfectly. Uh, we have a long way to go. Our, um, uh, we had a chief, um, intercultural, uh, officer and she said, you know, we have to work on race here at Wheaton. But even more pressing is how we deal with gender. So we still have a lot of work. But in my own experience, it being now in my 10th year, I have found this to be a very supportive space. I can be who I am. I can be very clear about who I am. I'm also ordained. I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church. I was in that process uh, when I started here at Wheaton. I've never had to hide parts of my identity. But I also really appreciate that I have colleagues and students who disagree with me, and yet we still can be committed to the gospel and that makes me actually better uh, because i think if i was in a space where everyone agreed with me all the time i wouldn't have to do such good work yeah, and yeah, so it yeah. pushes me and it it shows me that while i do believe this is my own vocational call the advocacy of women it's um there it's okay it's okay it's not the central issue in that uh affirming who christ is and Christ's redemption is the key thing that's that's the gospel and then we can disagree on on women Although I would say if we get women wrong, we've really messed up the center of the gospel. So I'm a little bit fuzzy on that. But what I mean is, it's not a fellowship sure. breaker for me. I totally want to be in fellowship with someone, even if they don't affirm my own ministry. And I have some really beautiful stories of how that happens here.
0: Interesting. Okay, so women in the marketplace, gender in the marketplace, um, still a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, There's some who would advocate for. We need equality of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And others are insisting, well, the only way we know we have equality of opportunity is if there's equity of outcome. Mm -hmm. And then so you get in the whole thing where every every time there's women seem to be underrepresented Mm -hmm. in a particular field, say CEOs throughout big corporations, that's, well, that's obviously sexism. Mm -hmm. So... It's a thorny issue. How do you how can we see that in a responsible way?
1: Mm. Yeah, wow. And this is why I'm so grateful to be at a liberal arts college, because when I get into these issues, I can ask my sociologist friends or my economic friends. Um, And I have read some of their work. Amy Reynolds is a name also to know. She does very good work on organizational structures and gender and what it looks like for an organization to advocate for women and then to put them into leadership. So it is thorny. It is complicated. I will speak from my Expertise, And I will say that one's call. And, and to me, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 are really informative here where Paul talks about all the different gifts in the church. We know these passages, the eye and the hand and similar apostles and prophets. Fascinatingly, those chapters say nothing about gender. Not one thing. And so it does. I think there's an affirmation that the spirit can move and gift people, uh, male or female, in all kinds of ways. So I'm very, very anti-stereotype. I hate any sense of, oh, women should do this. Men should do this. No, God's too interesting for that. We can do things that are unexpected. Uh, So I would advocate for students, and again, I think so much about college students entering the marketplace, wherever they feel a sense of call, of giftedness, of talent, press into those spaces. And I still think it will be a few decades until we see more balance. I see this in the church. People often intellectually will say, I totally get the exegesis. I affirm women, but you know, it makes me really uncomfortable and I don't want to go to a church with a woman, right? There's that kind of intellect and experience. And I still think we need maybe a generation or two until the experience feels more natural. Uh, I have two sons. I have one daughter and two sons. And I'm, I've been uh, in the hiring process for fellow faculty now for several years. And I also see this really tricky thing of, advocating for women right especially in spaces like my own in which the balance is not equal which means that you have to reject a lot of really talented men and i i don't like that but i don't know what to do about it and so if there's kind of a a pendulum swing that only women should get jobs um i'm afraid that's going to come back and bite us in a while and then only men can get jobs if there's a way to find balance, uh, that would be an ideal, really from a Christian perspective. Uh, but how that works out is hard. And I recognize, of course, uh, bias. I recognize structures that work against women. I lived in uh, in England for a while. I lived in Scotland for a while. And I think America's got like light years to go on childcare. <laughs> we do like a horrible job on that. And so uh, if we're going to advocate for any kind of equity, and COVID has really revealed this, right, not just for women, men and women, we need a better system to make sure our kids are cared for and people can press into their career goals uh, in a way that's healthy. So you don't have to be at the office 90 hours a week. You can still parent your kids and do this other thing. So um, I don't know what the future will look like, but I hope my children, and that's much more heart hope, uh, I hope my children have the space to go into anything they feel talented in uh, and not worry so much about looking at the big map of balance, but um are people allowed to be in.
0: But should the goal when you're hiring, for whether it's in the church or in mm. the seminary or in the rest of the marketplace, should the goal be to ignore gender and do everything you mm. can? For instance, in, the, in symphony orchestras some years back, they decided... Mm. We'll just put a curtain down. They'll be. We'll have no way to identify whether Mm -hmm. this person is a man or a woman, Mm -hmm. and it radically increased the number of women in symphony orchestras. Mm -hmm. Whereas some people would say, "It's like, well, we got to make sure that there's more women, so we want to know who's a woman, and we'll pick them partly because they are a woman."
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I do think a person comes to a job with their whole selves. I'm very much into holistic um, you know, presence in in a career. Uh, and so I guess I would advocate we need to know those things. And again, I already affirmed the import- importance of representation. Um, if you have only 5% women in, say, a faculty, well, that's sending a message. I think the tricky, the, the very challenging thing is in those transition periods. So you know, I wouldn't want to be a stickler of it has to be exactly 50-50, um, but I would hope that whatever the leadership structure would mirror those that they're serving. So if that's in a business world or, you know, if and again, I think academics, but like if our student population is 60, 40 men, women, then that'd be kind of, that'd be a good aim to get to for our faculty. Um but then the, that comes down to individual hires. And I have said on, I've done hires the past five years. And when you're looking at full people, uh, theory is there and kind of ideal is there, but you're looking at people's lives and it gets a lot more complicated. Um, I'm sorry. I, I don't feel like I have good answers to that. And I think part of it is I hate saying no to people. I hate turning them down. And so um, that that is a hard thing. But I do think we need to change perception and the way we do that. Is to invite more women, more people of color, maybe into spaces that they haven't been, and I think that that's beginning to happen. Um, for, for yeah, for in both art and business, like the, it's it's a cultural thing too. It's it's a passions thing. I'm very influenced by Augustine, James K. Smith. You don't just tell people what to think; you have to create kind of desire, a passion for them. And the arts do that. So I love that you brought up the symphony example. That's really fascinating.
0: Right. So, yeah, the message there being don't focus on gender, focus on ability. And and you might be surprised what the results are.
1: Right. So. Right. Yeah. But so, if, yeah, if there was ever a way to focus on ability, but then not forget gender, because, again, I don't want to, to separate those things it's out. V- we it's are
0: very both. tricky, very <laughs> tricky, because, of course, the same thing is happening with race. So, oh, right. Right. so some would argue... Um, f- Encountering those people that say we want at least 50 yeah. 50. Um, they say, okay, but there's all these women that want to be mothers too. Is it realistic? I mean, women are quite amazing, yes, but should women really be able to raise two, three, four kids as the main? Mm-hmm. Parent, especially in those earlier years, and be just as successful as men, mm-hmm. just as highly represented? Is that realistic? And is that maybe not only asking too much of women, but mm-hmm. then maybe it's having some negative effect on men mm-hmm. also, saying, yeah. actually, may- maybe you count less?
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, which uh, yeah. plenty
0: of feminists, angry feminists would be glad to embrace. Yes, you do countless.
1: <laughs> right, which again, a Christian perspective would never be able to say that. Um, what a wonderful question. Um, so... I'm mean, going to approach this in two ways. One, I think, has to come from your own story of what that looks like. Uh, one thing I appreciate about third wave feminism, and maybe this is true of fourth as well, is that there is a recognition that women have different desires, whereas I really think second wave feminism, or at least the fringe of it, was every woman needs to enter the workplace, right? We're fighting for this. And they would get really frustrated with women who didn't want that Mm -hmm. third wave. There seems to be a more healthy recognition that women have different goals and desires, Uh, Some women really long to be at home 24 hour, you know, with their kids volunteering. And that's a beautiful thing. Some want a bit of a balance. And that's really where I have been when I love being a professor. But one of the main things I love about it is that it offers me flexibility, where Mm -hmm. with my kids, I get to be with them almost every day, a significant portion of the day. Now that means I'm up really early riding, sometimes really late doing my work, but I get to be with them. And my husband has done exactly the same thing. So we've co-parented parented them from the day one. And we consider that a great gift. Wow. Um, so that balance, but some women say, no, I really love my career. I want to press into that. And then maybe my husband's at home. So I think that I would love to get to a place where Whatever decision a couple makes that's best for them, best for their kids is celebrated and no kind of like pressure is put one direction or another. Uh, so that if a woman and, and that there would be trajectories in the workplace, that if a woman is like, I really want to stay home for five, six, seven years. Uh, is there an entry path to get back on so that they they don't feel that guilt, that pressure of, well, I have to keep working if I'm going to advance. That is that is not feminism right there. Like if a woman feels pressured, uh, that's that's not OK. Uh, I do think that when, when women are allowed into spaces other than motherhood. uh, It does allow men to become more fully involved parents. And maybe that's been true for long enough now that no, it doesn't even need to be said. Uh, But I think that's a great gift. This kind of um, picture of no women, men are the breadwinners need to be gone every day. Women stay home. I think for a lot of people that might work, but for a lot of people that leads to serious disconnection and depression. Mm. Um, So I don't think you have to look far to see that allow each person to decide, well, I would say in a Christian perspective, what God is calling them into. And then I would go back to the story of Mary. Uh, I'm writing on her right now. So she's very, it's very fresh. Uh, She didn't just mother Jesus. She was also, um, she she was there with Peter at Pentecost, preaching the gospel. She was influential at, over, over Jesus's adult ministry. She was participating with him. She was very prophetic with the Magnificat. So for any woman who might be kind of locked into motherhood and motherhood alone, it would be her. But in fact, that's not the witness of the New Testament. And then we get so many women who do a variety of things um, in the New Testament. So I think that that uh, multiple vocations is scripturally affirmed, Old and New Testament. So that's not against um, kind of God's design. I very much am against this idea of like womanhood is to stay home and that's the highest and only calling. Uh, I think that's an imposition of like some Victorian cultural mandate that is not rooted in Scripture whatsoever.
0: So I guess we need to be really careful when we look at statistics and we just mm. look at this raw data. Women are underrepresented here. Women are underrepresented there. Oh, and, therefore, right. mm-hmm. and therefore jump to conclusions that are right. unwarranted. We need to look at various layers. So Great. we've already touched on this. But could you lay um, the groundwork, the define the terms? What all is involved in the complementarian, egalitarian okay. debate? Mm-hmm. How is scripture used? And so this is going to bring us into some of these very tricky right. scriptures. Right, uh, right. So, yeah, this is this still is, um, a huge issue in the church, of course.
1: Absolutely, and and it is so hard. In some ways, I wish we could all just get along, right? But I also recognize these are deep issues for people. They're either personally involved, if if they feel a sense of call, and they're a woman, or right, men have daughters and wives and mothers. I mean, this, we're all, this is very, very personal, I think for everyone. And it, it goes back to what we think God wants us to do. So the stakes are high. So complementarian, egalitarian, anyone you ask, I think, that that writes about this would say, oh, we don't like those terms. And so it's funny, even uh, when this conversation starts, there's always the caveat of, I wish we had something better. And some authors have tried to make other suggestions. They just haven't caught on quite yet. But by definition, all would say and affirm the Amango Dei in all people, the image of God in everyone, the value of everyone. But a complementarian would say then, men and women do have different roles in the home and in the church. So equal in value, different in roles, whereas an egalitarian would say equal in value and equal in roles that men and women uh, don't have to do anything or not do anything based on their sex, but only on their calling or giftedness. So I think those would be With the a few parameters. exceptions. What's that?
0: With a few exceptions.
1: With a few exceptions. Based on
0: anatomy, like
1: okay, exactly. giving exactly. birth. Yes, yes, exactly. Which I think, again, I mean... I don't know. That's, that's a really beautiful thing that, I mean, my parents, I said my husband and I co-parent, but of course he couldn't bear them nor nurse them for years. Uh, and so there are some beautiful differences. I think the affirmation that God said male and female is good. That's something I want to hold on to. Um, I just don't want to affirm that distinction and goodness in any way that's limiting for either men or women. So um so those are kind of the, the spectrum. I think it really is worth saying, and some historians have done good work about this, but truly, if you read really Reformation or anything previous, while they have some amazingly beautiful things to say, they are all, many of them are working with that assumption of women's uh, lesser value, right? Not being quite as ideal as men. And so the modern version of complementarianism, uh, sometimes it, they will, uh, a complementarian might say, well, we have the traditional position. And I think by that, they mean, you know, the wide swath has not been that women have been in leadership. So I can see in that way, it's traditional. But that's not totally fitting because a traditional position would be women are not quite fully human. And so that's why they can't do things. Uh, They're more easily deceived, right? First Timothy two, And so now we really are, complementarian has been just as influenced by feminism as egalitarianism is because they too would affirm the total value of women, but still affirm a role difference. And that kind of holding those things together didn't really exist in the past.
0: Uh, So so complementary. That doesn't mean that
1: it's bad, but it's just it's not the position that people have always held.
0: So complementarianism just keeps getting softer and softer, basically.
1: Yeah, I've seen that in my own lifetime. Uh, I, I think that's true. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and so um, and again, I I have dear complementarian friends. We really have very good relationships, but in some ways, it it, it feels like, well, what what are you still holding on to? Because uh, you've given up so much. Women can teach. Women can do this. Women, so what what's retaining you? And often the answer is authority. And and for many, at least in my circles, now I recognize this is very different in Catholic or Orthodox circles, but in Protestant evangelical circles, the hinge point is First Timothy 2. Uh, that, so I've had numbers of people say, I would affirm women if First Timothy 2 wasn't in scripture. Um, and to me, that's a bit telling that maybe we haven't read that text fully correctly if that's the one thing that's holding us there uh now i think others would say well then you have the apostles and you have men in leadership there are other answers than that but for at least many that i've talked to that's the verse that that holds them and it has to do with it it speaks about authority i do not uh, uh, paul says there and i do think ephesians is by paul um I, i do think paul is writing to ephesus to timothy and ephesus um I do not permit a woman to uh, teach nor to have authority over a man um, because Adam was formed first and then Eve and Eve falling into t- t- uh, being deceived, became a transgressor. Um, so there's this it seems like, well, this can't just be cultural. It has to go back to creation. Uh, mm-hmm. That would be the complementarian argument. Um I would push back and say, well, really, what is that Adam and Eve statement making there? Is it saying, hey, she's second, so she's not as valued, and she's more easily deceived, so women can't lead because... They sin more, basically. Nobody wants to affirm that. Uh, and so I think you, a complementarian, would really have to articulate what's being said about Adam and Eve there that doesn't devalue the image of God in women. Um, I then will press into verse 15 where Paul talks about childbirth. I think there again is a reference to the incarnation that Christ has changed everything and that though women and men bore the fall, the weight of sin. He has changed that, and Paul is focusing particularly on how Christ has changed that for women, so that then they can grow in the virtues of self-control and and all the other virtues that Paul mentions there. So I think Paul says, "I want women to learn." Uh, the women in Ephesus aren't quite ready to teach or to lead uh, because we know they're struggling with false teaching. Uh, he's very comfortable with women teaching in other places, so that's not an all times and all places kind of thing for him. And ultimately, he says. Saying that Christ has made it possible for women to uh, get ready to grow into these spaces of influence. I, that's how I read 1 Timothy 2. But, uh, but many complementarians would say, I just think God has affirmed an authority structure that men are authoritative in a way that women aren't, and they might look back to the fact that or the way in which Genesis has been interpreted that Adam is created first, uh, or that um, ephesians five men are the head of the home, etc, uh, although there's much debate about that, but then I would ultimately say, well, doesn't Jesus do a whole lot of interesting redefinition of authority? <laughs> like his disciples are like, Hey, we want to sit on your right and your left and you're like no it's 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 the least you serve and so um, at base. Uh, I think we have to reorient how we think about holding on to authority and power. And that would be true for both men and women. Anyone that says, I want to be in leadership because I want power. I mean, nobody would say that out loud. But if you're thinking it, that's a bad thing Um, uh, that needs to be uh, re-evaluated, I think.
0: So um, can you do you remember some of the other terms besides complementarian and egalitarian that people have proposed?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, One comes from um, a book by Lucy Pepiot, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, in which she um, mutualist for egalitarian and hierarchicalist for complementarian, because her Mm. argument is, and, and this seems fitting to me, that everyone in at least these camps, right, would say that men and women complement one another, that there are differences. And those differences, God said, are good. So everyone at base is a complementarian. And so, too, everyone is an egalitarian because everyone thinks that men and women are equal before the cross. And so she would say and many right. have said those terms Aren't fair, but she said mutualist because an egalitarian would say, "Hey, this is mutual. Marriage is mutual. The church is mutual." And the complementarian would say, "Yeah, but there's a hierarchy. There's a way in which men are above women." Now, I don't know a lot of complementarians that would want to be known as hierarchicalists. So Pepiat is very much uh, supportive of women in all spaces. So she has come up with a word that I'm not sure would be embraced by everyone on the other side.
0: Well, so we probably need to keep working. To get better terms,
1: exactly, exactly,
0: or use adjectives, right? So uh, we've touched on this before, but there are scholars who would say, "I'm all for Jesus. Look what Jesus did for women. He elevated women. He made women equal." Paul comes along, and then you know we we talk about you know the, the pastoral epistles coming later. The church is you know it's fighting for its life. It's fighting against heresy. And in order to make itself more secure, it's looking out for its institutional integrity and elevating women is just not going over well in terms of you know, that one direction they're focused on, right? And so women get just put back in their place again. Mm-hmm. We see that with Paul and it just gets it gets worse. And mm-hmm. then it was just this short brief period with mm-hmm. Jesus that it was good. So how would you excuse me, how would you address yeah. those scholars?
1: Yeah. um, I think of a book by Daniel Kirk and the title is Jesus I have loved, but Paul question mark and issue by issue. It, it, it it kind of goes to this, this conversation. Um, I learned in, in my seminary and PhD under Beverly Gaventa, and she is an, fantastic Pauline scholar, another feminist theologian, feminist biblical interpreter that I would highly recommend people read. Uh, And she taught a class on Paul and gender, in which she made a compelling case for us that Paul has magnificently positive things to say about women. And she said and this, I've carried this with me, if we just focus on those passages where women are explicitly talked about, well, we might miss the forest for the trees. So again, talk about the ways in which Paul brings the gospel, brings the Holy Spirit, uh, brings the calling for all people that never differentiate on gender. Now, we still have to deal with these passages, but I would encourage people to take a, take another look at Paul, um, because I, I really have found and he has so many women that he um, praises their ministry. Romans 16 is not just a boring list of names. There's 13 women named there that he says, they are my fellow soldiers. Mm. They are in this with me. And again, I I do, if, if you're, I would imagine most of your listeners know this, but that he entrusted Romans to Phoebe is pretty magnificent because she would have taken it to the churches in Rome, possibly would have read it, But definitely, as Paul's representative, would have answered questions about it. So if he truly believed women were incapable or should never voice uh, or take the lead or think theologically or teach others theologically, he would not have handed his most theological Mm. letter to her. And he wouldn't have praised and worked alongside the many women, Priscilla and Aquila, being another great example. So read more of Paul. And then... um, those those passages that sound very demeaning um read some commentaries read some scholars because there are so many other ways to take it and and I want to be careful here because I don't want it to sound like well I don't like those passages so I'm finding a way to read around them that's not really been my experience I started from a church tradition that never had women in leadership this was not my What I was used to when I started asking these questions, I was on the other side mm. uh, of, of these issues, but what I discovered is actually the best historical reconstructions are those that show uh, an affirming uh, a, a reading that affirms women and here's why uh because if you're going to make sense of Paul canonically and really you don't even have to go to the pastoral epistles for this, but Corinthians itself, as I mentioned. If women are, have to be silent, well, then he's crazy because three chapters earlier, he said that they're prophesying. So, to make Paul coherent, it's not that, oh, these passages I don't like and I got to find a way to change them. I want him to be a full uh, a good author that makes sense. I want his argument to be logical. And I think the best way to do that is to see a reading that's affirming of women. I think what's happened in some church traditions is that these texts, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14, are so black and white. Women should be silent. That then the other passages where women's names are mentioned or um, uh, women's gifts are talked about, well, those aren't, those seem a little more gray or they're just not kind of just clear. So those were totally ignored in a lot of traditions. And so really, you then have a very imbalanced picture. Uh, so uh, but I have found First Timothy, too. It's a text that I in my earlier years would say, God, why did you allow this text? It, why in your sovereignty? Because it has hurt and oppressed so many women. But the more work I've done on it, I really do see gospel good news there. That, that moving toward, I think Paul is saying, hey, if you think women are second and they're more deceived, I'm going to tell you that Jesus has changed that. So th- there's even gospel in what would be, I think, one of the hardest passages. Um, but if I had maybe started my work by saying, well, I just hate all this. I'm going to walk away from it. I-, I think often of the apostles words to whom could we go? You have the words of life and reading some of the recent memoirs of of women who have been hurt in the church. Say, maybe I have to walk away from t- some toxic church situations but I can't walk away from Jesus. I can't walk away from the God revealed in him. And so that that to me has been a powerful anchor, even as I've uh, wrestled with these texts, like Jacob wrestled with the angel. There's been times that I'm not letting go until there's a blessing here. And if the blessing is I'm wrong and I should never be in leadership, then I'll accept that God is good and I'll accept that. I really do try to come to the text in a, as a teachable position. Um, but um, yeah that that's
0: what i've discovered <laughs> so as a new testament scholar you of course know that there's increasing from my experience um increasingly more weight put on a narratival uh mm-hmm. interpretation of scripture as in uh, that carries authority as opposed to mm-hmm. just this is a command the command genre subgenre within right, scripture right. that's where we know what we're supposed to do by these commands mm. right But now narrative is carrying a lot more weight.
1: That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that that is true. And so, you know, I've been trained in schools that have emphasized biblical theology. And so kind of if in decades or generations past, like Bible study and theology were two separate things, now they're much more together. But with that has become more of a sense of you don't just look kind of at each text on its own like a list. Uh, like a list of propositions, but you uh, say, well, what is the story told here? And creation, fall, redemption, I think it's a decent story, right? I think we would all say that, that yeah, that fits. Uh, but then to ask the question, well, what does that large story say about the role, the identity, the being of men and women? Uh, that's where things then people are still kind of figuring that out. But you're right. But even if we were to take it at the level of command, because I, I'm afraid that sometimes in narrative reading, it would be easy to create a narrative that we like and then say, oh, that's in scripture. Right. right so right. that danger is it very happens all personal. the time. Exactly. And I'm probably guilty of it, right? Um, But even if we took it at the level of command, again, you have to, for a long time, I thought, well, texts on gender are like this grand scale. And there's some that affirm women, and there's some that don't, and people just weigh the scale differently. So Mm. even if one were to take them as explicit statements, you have a mixed bag in scripture, and, and I don't think anyone would deny that. I mean, that's why there's huge books written from both sides, because they have to explain support from their position, but also say, well, what do I do with these texts that don't seem to support my position? Uh, if the issue was simple, we wouldn't. the conversation wouldn't have kept going. Uh, and so that mixed bag is something that you would recognize whether or not you're employing narrative.
0: All right. So now, where does feminism hurt women? How does feminism hurt women?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And again, and I do this so much with my students because I'm very comfortable being... Owning the label feminist, but then I always say, but let me define it. (laughs) Right. So then we could ask the question, what kind of feminism and how does it hurt women? So we're painting with broad strokes there, but sometimes you have to do that. Um, I do think that issue that we talked about a moment ago, the kind of um, guilt that gets put upon women, that if you're not doing all things, then you're not living up to your potential. Um, I think God has blessed me with my two best friends in the world, one friend since we were 10, one friend more recently but they're the women that I'm closest with are both stay-at-home moms <laughs> mm. and I'm very much a like I said I talked about balance but very much kind of pushing into my career and I love that like I have these relationships that I can say hey that is good and healthy and they are called to that and they are killing it as stay-at-home moms they're amazing so that if feminism would say to my two best friends, You're doing the wrong thing. Wow, that is so hurtful and so such a lie because they're doing exactly what they've been created to do. Um, So I think that's how it could hurt women. I also, as an advocate of marriage that is mutual and egalitarian marriage, I think one possible danger is if if a couple could get in like a tit for tat, like I did the dishes three days this week, you have to do them three days. Like so, this kind of like really competition that makes sure that things are equal all the time. Mm. Um, Now I have to admit I've never. I've heard of one couple struggle with that, but most of our friends of egalitarian, so I've never really heard of that being a big issue. Uh, but I could imagine that could be a place that would be um damaging.
0: Okay, but some some would argue that uh some feminisms don't promote equality. They promote women trying to be like men.
1: Oh yes, that has been a stripe. Absolutely. Yeah. And and again, I think if um the Christian, here I'm about to say story, uh, the Christian doctrine, um, I think does, you know, we have to say there. there's something distinct and good about women. I just think it's really hard to define. <laughs> um, and I know people get frustrated at times, uh, if, if, if I don't define it, but Men and women, God says we're different and we're good. Our bodies are different. Uh, society treats us different. Uh, and these are just realities that we have to affirm. So if anything, kind of back to that issue on hiring, like if if you are invited to uh, the table, a career, uh, but you have to like repress the fact that you might want children or that you have bodily realities that need to be attended to, right? Then that that's not helpful. And that's not feminist. So any kind of ignoring of... Um, the distinction, I think, is is not helpful.
0: And uh, so how does feminism hurt men?
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, y- we've mentioned, you've said a few things that like if men get the message, I'm not as valuable, like we have to always have women all the time and I should be silent. Well, then again, we're just going to have that pendulum swing in the other direction, next generation. So that's not helpful. No, I don't think anyone is called to be silent. There are times we're all called to listen and be teachable, but um, God gives voice to to both men and women. Um, And um, I'm trying to think of other ways that Feminism could hurt men, really just kind of a sense that they they have to step back and they can't contribute. I think in the modern world, like a lot of men are afraid to, to speak about these issues because they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, uh, to say something offensive. I see this in the workplace at times. Uh, and I would say if you can find a trusted female friend, uh, that you can kind of, Hey, I'm thinking this, does that sound okay? That's really important. And hopefully there are spaces where people can make mistakes. I mean, this seems so applicable to the issue of race, right? As, as a, as a white person, I am often very, am I going to do the wrong thing? But I have some friends of color that, um, I try not to bug them, but I can ask at times, is this okay? And that's really, really helpful in, in a time period in which we're feeling these things out. Um, yeah. So, I, oh, the other thing I was going to say is there's been an explosion in the last, I don't know, decade, maybe more of masculinity studies and New Testament work. And I think this has been so helpful for a long time. People focused on women from the 70s, 80s, 90s. And now there's a group of scholars saying, well, what about men? Like this kind of um, standard that men had to live up to in the ancient world. How do Jesus and his apostles kind of buck against that? What kind of freedom does that offer men now? And that's a really good corrective to studies that had focused on women alone. Um, That's why I actually changed the name of my class from women in the New Testament to gender. I I totally understand why women was the focus. I think historically you do have to take things out, but I think the message is really calling both men and women to press more fully into our God-given identities, uh, and we need some correction on both sides. So I think that's a very healthy movement I would recommend Brittany Wilson. She's just fantastic and writes on masculinity in the New Testament. She's done some very good work.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if you followed the whole Jordan Peterson phenomenon, but he's, his critique of the feminization of Western culture has really struck a chord with a lot of men. I think they've just felt like weak and like, okay, mm-hmm. there's just something inherently bad about the way mm-hmm. we are in Process things and go after things, and we just need to pull back, and mm-hmm. then men feel weakened because they don't know how we're how are we supposed to be men and wow, so there's something there I mean i'm not with Jordan Peterson, I find him fascinating, and a lot of things I could strongly agree with him and other things i'm not so sure, but it's it's there's a reason he's a phenomenon
1: mm, yeah that's that's a real yeah, maybe we're already starting to see that that pushback and so if if um, if men are ignored, that's to everyone's detriment. Uh, and and I think maybe back to my comments about authority, um, th- th- we're offered a lot about what it is to be strong and, and powerful. Um, and and so there, there, it's com- it is complicated. But but there's good in taking initiative. There's good in strength. Uh, it just has to be channeled in the right way. Um, and, you know, it strikes me too, Jordan Peterson, I've heard of him, but, but only a bit. Um, you know, it's all what circles one runs in. Uh, but in the little circles where I happen to run evangelicalism, which is very kind of, Wheaton is a place for that. Uh, I think still the conversation is a lot about toxic masculinity and how to reject that. So um, I don't think those those waves have quite yet reached us. I mean, we're all kind of just finishing up the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And um, hmm. that's the conversation point. So
0: right. right, we can get so focused on what's wrong with masculinity, what's wrong with racism. And mm-hmm. even there, I mean, you have so much of anti-racism that needs to now be corrected and the anti-toxic male um, Mm -hmm. movement that now needs to be corrected. So Mm -hmm. this pendulum, it just keeps swinging. So final question, what is the church to do? How is the Mm -hmm. church to um, deal with this issue of feminism? And um, of course, part of it is like, how far do we go and how do we know when we've gone far enough? Yeah, that's a and great question. How do we keep mm-hmm. living into this?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm very much a firm believer that God is on the move in the local church. Um and so yeah, I, you know, like to participate in big conversations and think kind of broadly but that's where the work is done. Uh, now, of course, there can be unhealthy churches. <laughs> I, I totally recognize that, so I'm not saying that they're perfect. But in the the kind of the small spaces where you actually know your brothers and sisters, um, and so I would I would I think what is really important is that churches are small enough whether you have thousands of people, you have a small group ministry where you can really get to know one another and you learn about your real lives. Uh, And so that there can be support for men and women in the ups and downs of their life, whatever they're facing, uh, the basic needs, the dreams, that you have that community that upholds you. Now, as for leadership, um, it's it's a Good question. Um, I think a church is should be open to exploring these issues. I know lots of churches in the last. the last few years who have said, you know, we've never had women in leadership, but now it's time to investigate this. So even our willingness, and and some have decided, yep, we're going to have women. Some have said, nope, we're still going to only have men, but they were willing to ask the question. So I would say to a church that has never kind of opened this can, um, it's going to be hard, but it's worth doing. The society around us is, this is such a topic you, we have to be willing to deal with it. And we shouldn't be afraid. Our God is the God of truth. Uh, we can pray for peace and unity in the midst of hard things. And I've seen beautiful processes happen as churches have done that. And then once that church makes a decision of who they are, how they're interpreting scripture, then they can start to ask the question, what do we want our leadership to be? Um, uh, and, and that's that's going to look different place by place. I, I do think, and again, this may be... Um, where i am but i think it's become increasingly difficult to advocate for leadership structures in which only men make decisions if there are rooms in which no women are included um that seems deeply problematic now i understand if churches have an elder structure or whatever um Mm -hmm. But that seems a bit untenable in recent years. And so I think churches also need to say well, if we want to have certain ideas about gender roles in clergy, how do we make decisions? Or how do we have an executive kind of team that oversees? things that, that we can have the different perspectives. And notice that's really an affirmation that women bring something different. Uh, and so that's not kind of a flattening that all men and women are the same. And so, no, it's really that women bring something into those spaces that need to be heard. Just as we would say, uh, no one no one could ever say, well, a church leadership structure can only be white people, right? That would be anathema. Um, I, I think so too, we really, Places need to evaluate. If you have spaces where only men are making decision, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, look around and that hasn't gone well. So I, I really mm-hmm. think that needs to be considered. But as far as like who's representing, who's standing on the altar or the stage or who um, churches have to make that decision really case, case by case, how they read scripture. And I believe that God blesses all kinds. God is at work at complementarian and egalitarian uh, maybe one of us is wrong, but God in God's grace has said, I'm going to keep working through you. And the gospel is still going to be. He said, no one can say one group of churches is failing and one is thriving. No, you find failing and thriving churches in both pockets. And so um, God is faithful, maybe even when we're uh, misperceiving or doing the wrong things. But if our heart is right, if we're searching the scriptures, if we really are trying to live correctly, God honors that. And we just have to recognize this side of the kingdom. We don't see it all perfectly.
0: All right. Okay, good stuff. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been watching The Charge. Today we've been with Dr. Amy Peeler, professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Dr. Peeler, thanks so much for joining us.
1: It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation.
0: All right. Peace to everyone.